Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Good evening. Bad advice. I don't know if you've ever got bad advice, which at the time you thought was pretty good and you followed it and it led to some pretty dark places or places you didn't expect to go. And that's the the series we're in. If you're joining us tonight, we're in a series called Bad Advice. And what we're wanting to do with bad advice is filter it through God's Word where we take bad advice and we replace it with biblical truth. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Graham and I'm one of the pastors here at City Reach. Uh, I was born in... South Africa, and I grew up in South Africa, and I went to high school in South Africa. And I went to actually a very strict, all boys, very traditional high school. And uh, with a strict high school come lots of rules. And one of the rules was that you always had to have short hair. And like any rule that there is, you kind of want to break the rule or find a way to get around it. So what we would do is we would try and grow our hair as long as we possibly could before the summer holidays, and then, you know, at least in our eyes, we thought we'd have a pretty cool hairstyle for the summer holidays. But one day, a friend of ours came to us, and he said, I've got a hack. I know how we can have even a better hairstyle over the holidays, longer hair. So we're like, okay, tell us, we want to know. And he says, this is it, guys, listen up. What you need to do is you need to take the contraceptive pill, you need to grind it down, and then you mix it with shampoo, and you wash your hair with it. And because of the hormones, it actually causes your hair to grow. Well, a friend and myself, we thought this was the most amazing thing, like sign us up, we're in. So the two of us went along to the family planning clinic. I was too embarrassed to go inside, But he went inside and he spins some story because he came out with a handful of the contraceptive pill. And I remember we went back to his house and we used his mother's spice grinder. And we ground up the contraceptive pill and we put it in shampoo and we proceeded to to wash our hair with this this shampoo. I don't know what her spices ever tasted like after that. But anyway... We convinced ourselves that our hair was actually growing and looked much better than anyone else's. So we thought we'd share this wonderful thing we had learned with our friends at school. So we got back and we said, hey guys, you wouldn't believe it, but this hair, it happened because of the contraceptive pill. Now, a very peculiar thing happened because they weren't nearly as gullible as we were. And let's just say it led to very, very many embarrassing moments whenever we were around the word estrogen or contraceptive came up quite a lot. So that bit of bad advice cost me embarrassment and probably a good lesson. But bad advice can actually be very, very damaging. So... Audrey Pott was a 15-year-old girl who got some really bad advice, and it cost her far more than a bit of embarrassment. It cost her everything. My life is over. 
That was the last post Audrey ever put on Facebook. Because a few hours later, her mother found her hanging in the shower. She had killed herself. This is, this is Audrey. This photo was taken a few weeks before Audrey killed herself. So here's the question, right? What caused Audrey to believe that her life was too messed up to even be worth living? So you see, it started 10 days before. Audrey went to a party, a house party. And at that party, she drank and she drank and she drank until she was so drunk, she passed out. And then a group of boys, her classmates, her friends, guys she knew from school, picked up her unconscious body and they took her upstairs into one of the bedrooms and they proceeded to completely undress her. And then as a joke... They took a permanent marker and they wrote all over her body, all these crude and vulgar phrases. And then they sexually assaulted her. And they took photos and videos of the whole thing. Audrey woke up the next morning. She didn't really know what had happened, but she found all this writing on her. And she got dressed. She went home. She didn't tell anyone, but she turned to social media to find out what had happened from her friends, from these guys she knew and had trusted. And then she began to find out that the photos and videos that they had taken, they had actually distributed amongst the whole school. And Audrey began to feel whenever she went to school, everyone was looking at her. She felt the shame and this guilt, like she had done something incredibly wrong. It got so bad and so intense that the attacks on social media from people she knew said, you are, well, that is so messed up. If I were you, I would kill myself. And Audrey got to the point where she believed her life was too messed up, that it wasn't worth living considering what people now thought of her. And she killed herself. And Audrey's story is told in a, in a documentary. You can find it on Netflix. It's called Audrey and Daisy. It's about two girls who go through a similar thing. It's a good documentary. It's very hard to watch. As a dad, I find it really, really hard. But the question we're looking at tonight, so is it true that you can be too messed up for God, that God would look at your life and he would say, ah, you know, I don't know, there's just, there's too much there. There's too much brokenness, there's too much sin, there's too much shame, there's too much dirt, too much self-righteousness. There's nothing I can do about that. And to answer that question, what we need to do is look at the character of God. We need to ask ourselves, what is God really like? Is he, is he near? Is he far away? Does he care or is he... He just doesn't care at all. Is he forgiving? Is he just? What is he really like? And the Bible tells us, if you want to know what God is like, then you need to look at Jesus. Because Colossians tells us, it said, for in Christ, 
all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. It's as if God took himself, all that wonder that created the universe, that power, and he put himself into a man, a human form. So in Jesus, you get someone who is fully man, but at the same time, he is fully divine. And Jesus hung out with people who would, we would consider messed up all the time. In fact, messed up people were drawn to Jesus. And the religious leaders of the day looked at Jesus and they said, like, why are you hanging out with sinners? Now, sinners is just that Bible word. We only tend to use it in church, right? So sinners at that time was everyone, everyone knew you were bad. Everyone knew that it doesn't go a good person. And Jesus, why are you hanging out with those people? So let's look at, at what we read today, right? From John 8, I think a good title for this little passage would be Jesus Meets Messed Up People. So here we go. Verse 2, if you've got your Bibles, follow along with me. Verse 2, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So Jesus is sitting down, and he's teaching people. He does what he does best, right? He's teaching people, and he's gathered people, right? All the people have come to hear him. And then this happens, right? Verse 3 and verse 4. Everything gets broken up. This happens. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So what you have here, you have the Pharisees and the scribes. Now these are the Jewish religious leaders of the day. They are the moral police. And they have this huge problem with Jesus. Because they are the religious leaders, but all the people are going and listening to Jesus. They've been taught by Jesus, and they don't like it. He's embarrassing them. They're jealous of him. So they're thinking, how can we get rid of him? Right? We're kind of afraid of what the people will do, but how can we get rid of this Jesus character? So they, they come up with a plan, right? This is now the perfect chance. They find a woman caught in adultery, and they brought her. Now, don't think of it as they found the woman and said, oh dear, do you mind coming with us while we go have a chat with Jesus? They grabbed her naked, probably pulled her by the hair, and in the midst of everyone, right in the middle, they, they put her down. They wanted the whole world to see her shame. It's kind of like Audrey's story, right? They put her shame on public display, right? Just removed her of her humanity, her dignity, and treated her like a mere object, right? There, there she is. Now, let's be honest, right? Let's look at this. What she had done was really, really bad. She had been caught having sex with someone other than her husband or someone else's husband. And I don't know if you noticed today, but like in modern culture, how we soften language or we change language to make something that's horrible sound not so bad. So I don't know, no one talks about to commit adultery anymore. They say to have an affair. Now, that almost sounds exciting, right? And what about sexual 
impurity, right? We don't say sexual impurity anymore. We say hook up or make out. Or the latest one, Netflix and chill. I mean, cheating. We don't even call it cheating anymore. We call it ball tampering. Anyway. So here we have, finally, you guys got that one. I'm South African. I'm allowed to say that. Okay. So here we go. Back to the story. We have the Pharisees, right? These bad guys, they are there pointing finger, and we have this woman who's been caught in adultery. And the conversation goes on. Verse 5 and a bit of 6. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Jesus. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Perfect trap. This is it. The stage is set, right? Israel is occupied by the Romans. Under Roman law, the Jews cannot sentence anyone to death. So they can't practice part of the Mosaic law. So if Jesus says, you know what, you're right, she's got to be stoned. All they have to do is report it to the, the Roman authorities and Jesus is done. Problem solved. He's gone. He's out of the way. But if Jesus says, no, 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 she doesn't deserve to be stoned, then they got it. Well, this guy, he's breaking the law of Moses. He's a false prophet and he'll expose him to the people. So this is the perfect trap, right? Perfect trap. And I don't know if you've ever felt trapped that you just can't say, see a way out. So that's kind of what they wanted, right? Jesus, you say yes, or you say no, we've got you. And it's actually, it's like this courtroom drama, right? Because it's all about the law. And what does Jesus do? It's absolutely brilliant. This is amazing, right? Rest of verse six, here it goes. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. So imagine the scene, right? They've set up the question, Jesus, what are you going to do? And what does he do? He bends down and he writes in the sand with his finger. Now, didn't see that one coming, right? Now, this wasn't Jesus sticking his head in the sand saying, like, I hope when I look up, they're gone, right? I just want to hide away. I'm going to play in the sand, and when I look up, they're going to be gone. Actually, what he's doing is he's giving them a very profound picture, and they would have got it. So what did he do exactly, right? Every word in the Bible is important. It says he wrote with his finger. Now, where else in the Bible do you hear a story of someone writing with their finger? It's a question. Okay, it's the law. It's the law, right? Deuteronomy, we go back to Deuteronomy. This is what it says. Deuteronomy 9, verse 10. It says, the Lord gave me, me being Moses, two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you and on the mountain out of the fire on the day of assembly. Now, so much ink. If you go into this, the scholars have spilled so much ink about what Jesus wrote in the sand. It's not the point. If the Bible wanted us to know what he wrote in the sand, it would have told us. The point is what he did. 
He's claiming two things right there. The one, very subtle, but he's claiming he's God. I wrote that law. And the second thing he's doing is he's actually saying to them, you know what, guys? I know that law better than you do. It's brilliant, right? Absolutely brilliant. If you're ever in trouble, just get Jesus as your lawyer. He just, it's absolutely amazing, right? Just takes it. Now, it's true. The law did say, if someone is caught in adultery, they should be stoned. That is exactly what the law said. This is it. We bring it up. It's from Leviticus. This is exactly what the law said. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Both the adulterer and adulteress shall surely be put to death. Guys, someone's missing from the scene. Who is it? The man, right? Where is he? Where's the guy? Now, I presume he's somewhere around. I mean, they caught her in the very act. Where's the guy? So what about this bunch of Pharisees? Like, have you ever thought, how were they on the scene so quickly? And did they really, really care about the law of God? Were they really concerned that she had broken the law of God and they were worried about God's reputation? Because if they were, they wouldn't have taken her to Jesus. They would have taken her to the Sanhedrin for her case to be tried. So what were they doing? They were using her. They were using the situation for their own advantage. I don't know if you've ever felt like that, right? Where you, you feel like someone is watching your life and they're waiting for you to fail. And then when you fail, they're like, yeah, gotcha. Now, there was another part of the law that said this, that you need two to three witnesses for a case to be legal, and you couldn't be a malicious witness. It's in, here it is. Let's read it again. Deuteronomy comes from 19. It says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And here it is, verse 16. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. Brilliant. You know what Jesus is really saying? He's talking to the Pharisees and he's saying, you guys are not reliable witnesses. In fact, you are breaking the very law you're accusing her of. You're guilty. So Jesus wasn't, wasn't saying like, if you've got absolutely no sin in your life, only then will you be able to pronounce punishment, right? That would rule out parents punishing their kids. So uh, I once heard a story, in fact, of a daughter when her mother was very angry at her, she turned around and said, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's brilliant. Wrong application, but brilliant, right? So if there are any kids in the room, just remember that, that, that verse and you're fine. But that's not the point here, right? The point is that these guys are guilty. They're guilty of the very sin they accused her of.
one thing we need to understand is that God is holy, right? Like, what, is, what does that even mean? It means that God is, is pure. He's blameless. He's sinless. There's nothing messed up in God absolutely at all, ever. And it doesn't mean that he's just never, ever, ever done the wrong thing. It means that he has always, always, always done the right thing. There is nothing evil in him. There's nothing compromised about him. There is nothing corruptible in him. He is righteous. Now, righteous is, is another Bible word that we only ever tend to use in church, right? When was the last time you used the word righteous? Outside of church. But what righteousness means, to be righteous means to live right, to do the right thing. It's a very relational word. It's got to do with relationships, to always do the right thing in your relationships, to have never done the wrong thing. And that's what God expects of us. He says, I expect you to be righteous, to live right. I've given you my laws. They are good laws. They are there to protect you. They are there to protect society. And I just expect you to be righteous. And the very ones who were entrusted with this law to uphold it were the ones who are guilty at this moment, right? So let's go on. Verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So here's the difference between older and younger guys. The older you get, you've lived long enough to know you're guilty. Young guys, you'll get this, right? You'll get there one day. But you kind of realize, you, yeah, okay, that's me. When you're a little bit younger, you, you, you brazen it out. You think, no, nah, I'm not really that bad. But the truth is, even they had to say, my goodness, we're guilty. And they turn away. See, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is dealing with messed up Pharisees. Like we think, we read the story and we go, oh my goodness, the woman is the messed up one, right? What's going to happen? But actually, Jesus exposes their hearts. He exposes what the Pharisees are really like. And then this happens, verse 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, well, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, Jesus stands up, and he speaks to her, and he says, has no one condemned you? She goes, no, there's, there's no one. All these guys have gone. They've all left. No one has said it. And Jesus says, well, you know what? Neither do I condemn you. And the Greek word for condemn sounds a lot like karate, okay? But this is the word. It's, it's katakarinos. Katakarinos. And what katakarinos really means is it's like the handing down of a judgment. It's a sentence. It's a legal term. Neither do I pronounce judgment on you. Neither do I sentence you. Jesus is saying to this woman, woman, your case is legally thrown out. It's legally gone. 
The very thing that they accused you of by the law is now dismissed by the law. You see, Jesus, he says, neither do I pass sentence on you because I'm only one and you need two or three witnesses. So Jesus could do that. I legally dismiss your case. But I want you to notice, he doesn't say that she is innocent. He doesn't say you're innocent of adultery. He says, I don't condemn you. But he gives her two things. He gives her mercy and he gives her grace. So what's the difference between mercy and grace? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So this woman deserves punishment and she doesn't get it. He gives her mercy. And then he gives her grace. That's often been said, the one thing that distinguishes Christianity to any other religion is the idea of grace. And grace means unmerited favor. You get what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, but grace is getting what you don't deserve. He accepts her as she is, but then he gives her grace to leave her life of sin because grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. He gives her that grace to leave her life of sin. If it wasn't possible, it was just a sick joke, but it was possible by the grace that Jesus was able to give her. She goes, Verse 12. Now, can you imagine? A crowd's probably gathered to witness this. And then Jesus says to them, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So imagine that. The scene's just ended. Now, what's Jesus going to say? What's his teachable moment for the crowd? And he chooses to say this. He says, I am the light of the world. Now, light has a positive and a negative quality. A negative quality of light is that it exposes things that are hidden. It brings them out. It exposes them. So, uh, Irina, my beautiful wife, she came to Australia first. And I stayed behind in Hong Kong for a few months with the kids to, for them to finish their school term and to finish up work. And uh, what I did one night is that I forgot to put a dish in the fridge. This is what happens, woman, when you leave your husbands alone. And it was hot. It's hot in Hong Kong. And anyway, I woke up in the middle of the night and <clears throat> I turned on the light. And all I saw were these cockroaches just kind of running. Oh, it was pretty gross, right? It was pretty gross. But all these cockroaches were scurrying away. The light exposed what was there. What was hidden now suddenly becomes visible, and it's pretty gross. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I will expose your sin. But a positive quality of light is that it lights the way. It shows you the way that you should go. It shows you in a dark world, this is the way you should go. And if you follow the light, you will never walk in darkness. So just before leaving Hong Kong, myself and two mates, they're Australian, right? So I blame them. But uh, we decided to do a night hike. This was a great way to finish up 
my time in Hong Kong, 50 kilometers we were gonna hike through the night. Uh, the only problem was two out of three of us forgot to pack extra batteries for our headlights. Sounds funny, but it wasn't, right? So at about three o'clock in the morning, we're tired, we're hungry, we suddenly realize this maybe wasn't such a good idea. And to make it worse, two of us, our batteries finally go flat. Thankfully, one of us, it wasn't me, <laughs> one of us remembered their batteries and they had the light, they had the sole light. And we're like, okay, we're following you. If we just follow you, we'll get there. We're not gonna stay in darkness if we just follow you. And that's what Jesus is saying. So if we have to look at this question, are we too messed up for God? The answer is yes. We're all too messed up for God. Every single one of us is too messed up for God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The woman in this story who acts on her impulses and pleasures and commits adultery, she's too messed up for God. The Pharisees who are self-righteous hypocrites, they're too messed up for God. Audrey Potts, whose identity and life was dependent on what others thought of her, she's too messed up for God. The boys who used Audrey as a mere object, they're too messed up for God. I'm too messed up for God and you're too messed up for God. There is no good guys and bad guys on the opposite side of the account. There is messed up, sinful, and then there's holy. That's all there is. So God has this problem, right? He is a holy God, and there is a sinful people. But God says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. I'm going to expose your sin, and we know it. We know when we hold our lives up to Jesus, it exposes who we really are. It exposes who we really are. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to expose you, but I'm the light of the world. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to follow you. You're going to follow me. And there's a place I want to lead you. And the very first place I want to lead you is to the cross. Because at the cross, justice and mercy are going to meet in this divine act of love. You see, Jesus, he is the only one, the only one who lived a completely righteous life. In every relationship, he did the right thing. No one could put anything on Jesus. He always did the right thing. He was completely blameless. He was perfect. He was filled with righteousness. And Jesus says, at the cross, if you follow me there, I will pay that penalty. I will pay that legal penalty for your sin. And I will give you my righteousness. I will take your sin. I will absorb it into myself. But I will give you my righteousness. This is what the Bible says. It said, He made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Are you too messed up for God? Yes, you are. 
and I am. But are you too far from God's grace and his mercy? Not even close. Not even close. Because Jesus comes to you. He comes to you. He loves taking messed up people like you and me who don't deserve it. And he gives us grace. And he says, follow me, follow me. But the first stop you have to come to is the cross. So if you like the Pharisees, and you like to throw rocks at a whole lot of other people and think of yourself better than everyone else, you're too messed up for God, but you're not far from his grace. And if you come to the cross, his grace is there. Or if you like that woman who is just openly full of sin and shame and follows her desires, you're too messed up for God. But God is offering you his righteousness, his righteousness. You know, it is often said that in Christianity, it's turned on its head. Because in order to be Anything else, anything else. If you ask a Muslim, it says, a Muslim, we do this, and that means we're a Muslim. Or a Buddhist, we do this, and it means we are a Buddhist. In Christianity, it's totally different. It goes, because I am a Christian, I am a child of God, I do this. Flips it on its head. And that's what Jesus says. Come to the cross. Can I pray for us? Father God, I pray that we would be a people who would always stand in awe of your mercy and grace. That we would be a people who truly see ourselves as we really are and realize we, we all fall short of the mark, Lord God. But you, in your mercy and your grace, you reach out to us and we love you for that, Lord. We love you. We just want to say thank you. Lord, I pray that if there's people here tonight who have come along, Lord God, would you speak to them? Would you show them the truth of who you are, what the character of God is really like, that you are a God who cares infinitely and is committed to his people and he loves his children. He will never leave them nor forsake them. Lord, I thank you that this is true. Lord, I pray that as your people, as we worship you now and we sing of your attributes, Lord God, may they be pleasing to you. And Lord, may we not just sing them and celebrate them tonight, but may we go out in the world. May we follow you, the light of the world, not in our own strength, Lord God, but in the strength and the grace that you've given us. We love you, Lord Jesus.